Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it is important for me to point out, especially to our visitors, that we are engaged in a verse-by-verse expositional study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, This is providentially where the Lord has brought us after 32 sermons in this book. We come now to chapter 7. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 10 through 16. Verses 10 through 16. And I'm going to preach a message entitled Divorce and the Gospel. Divorce and the Gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse number 10. These are the words of God. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. The woman which hath an husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or what knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? As we come to verses 10 through 16, we breach a very weighty and perhaps controversial subject. It's weighty because it is so prevalent, and it is controversial because of the debate over what the Bible really teaches about it. There is no one here today that has not been in some way affected by divorce. Divorced family, divorced friends, or even... Perhaps you have experienced a divorce yourself. 50% of marriages in America end in divorce. There are 2 million divorces each year in the United States. To say that our society has a problem is an understatement. We have a divorce epidemic. And we as the church are called to proclaim and live by what God has said about divorce. We cannot do that if we don't even agree amongst ourselves on a biblical perspective of divorce. If we run around the room this morning and ask the question, what is your theology on marriage and divorce, and how do you apply that to a number of practical situations, we would no doubt get a variety of answers. So how do we have unity on such a diverse subject? Will we ever come to total and full, complete unity? Well, it depends on a number of things. It depends on, number one, how we define unity. Because if we define unity as mere theological conformity, then we will never have unity on anything. But Christian unity is not defined by you know, how many of the same boxes we check off doctrinally. Christian unity is defined by the Spirit of Christ manifesting in ourselves, giving us grace to, to find commonality and, and love when we don't have necessary commonality. But another practical way to find unity on this subject is to identify 
the biblical principles that are clear and unambiguous and rally behind them, there are some things, even on a subject as controversial as divorce, that all biblical Christians should be able to rally behind and give grace in the areas that aren't so clear. And that is how I'm going to approach this text this morning. Here in this text, Paul gives us such principles. Remember, chapter 7 is not a detailed, systematic theology. Paul did not set out to write a systematic approach to marriage in all aspects of it. Chapter 7 and the chapters that follow are a series of practical answers to practical questions that were asked of Paul by the Corinthians. Paul had a correspondence with the church. He was present at the church, and there were questions that they had for him. There were also situations that he was aware of, and we only see one half of this conversation. We're listening in to one half of a phone call, as it were. And we don't know exactly what the Corinthians said to him, but we we can infer somewhat of the questions that they must have had by the way Paul replies to them. And there's a lot about marriage and divorce and remarriage that Paul doesn't say here, and that is on purpose. Paul was not intending to uncover every stone in this text. And my goal this morning is not to do that either, but rather to faithfully preach these verses. This will not be a topical sermon that attempts to lay out a theology of divorce. This will be, Lord willing, an exposition of this text. So that means, yes, you will probably have questions that I won't answer in this sermon, and that's okay. That is okay. Uh, The closest I'll come to answering some of the more specific needle-pinned questions will come in the introduction because I'm going to make several disclaimers that I want to give you both about this text and divorce in general before we begin. Uh, And hopefully these disclaimers will give you an idea of where I'm coming from and also perhaps ease your mind. So let me give you these disclaimers and then we will jump into this text. Disclaimer number one. Marriage and divorce are subjects that we should rally behind, not divide over. We should seek unity in this area, not seek to develop a position that is so persnickety that we have circles so small we cut off our own toes. There are men who will make an idol, and women who will make an idol out of their view of the family or their view of divorce and remarriage or whatever the case may be, and they'll make it a test of fellowship. Though there are clearly unbiblical views of marriage and divorce that we must reject outright, we should also recognize that there is room for honest Christians to have genuine disagreement while striving to be faithful to the biblical text. Just because you come to a position and and to you it's just plainly there in, in the pages of Scripture and you are convinced of it, that doesn't mean that someone else who also seeks to be faithful to the text and disagrees with you or sees it differently, is a raging heretic. So primarily, let me, let me say this at the outset, primarily within conservative, faithful, biblical, however you want to put it, evangelical Christianity, there are three major positions, three major camps that Christians have held to throughout church history. Three positions. One is the permanence view of marriage and divorce, which essentially teaches no divorce, under any circumstances. There's no biblical grounds for divorce. That's the permanence view. Then there is the one-clause view, 
which, which holds to marriage in the case of adultery or infidelity. And that is the only biblical grounds for divorce under the one clause view. And then there's the two clause view, which this text kind of really hints at. This is the key text for those that hold to the two clause view. They will say that divorce is permissible in the cases of adultery or in the cases of desertion by an unbeliever. Okay, so you have the permanence view, the one-clause view, the two-clause view. I point that out to say to you that if you are somewhere within the bounds of these three positions, then you are orthodox, and you need not worry about being shunned or ostracized, at least not here, anyways. Um, I know that there are people in this room that, that hold to these positions and disagree over that, but that is not uh, an area in which we will make issue at this church. We do not make disagreements within these three positions, tests of fellowship. So, disclaimer number two. Yes, I hold to one of these three positions as the correct position. And yes, I believe that the other two positions are wrong. And no, I will not be arguing for my position in this sermon. That's not what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 7. And that's not what I'm going to be getting at. Disclaimer number three. 1 Corinthians 7 I believe, in this passage, verses 10 through 16, refers to divorce, not remarriage. I don't believe that Paul really has remarriage after divorce in mind in these verses. So I'm also not going to really be addressing anything about uh, the issue of remarriage after a divorce. Disclaimer number four, and I, I have to be careful as I approach this text, because I know this is one of those texts that if you go in there, assuming people understand where you're coming from, you might leave your congregation with more questions than answers. And that is not what any pastor desires to do. So disclaimer number four is I'm also not really going to be getting into the, uh, the any of the what about this situations because here's what happens when somebody states their position on divorce and remarriage. And they say, this is what I believe. Here's why I believe it. The first response is, well, what about this situation? Let me tell you what happened to my uncle and you know how, you, how do you apply your, your position there? Again, Paul doesn't do that in 1 Corinthians 7, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, One of the the main reasons is that time would not permit me to go down this rabbit trail. And even if I did, there would certainly be a scenario that I uh, failed to address. One thing pastoral ministry teaches you is that once you think you've seen it all, you haven't. Okay, you haven't. And disclaimer number five, and most importantly, I want you to understand this, divorced Christians are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers grace and restoration and hope to Christians who have experienced a divorce. A divorce is never a joyous thing. Nobody ever sets out to have a divorce. But it is not something that cripples your spirituality for the rest of your life. Though there might be temporal consequences due to sins that you committed or sins that were committed against you that resulted in divorce, there is no hesitation nor is there any limitation on the part of God as he extends his grace towards you in Jesus Christ. If you have been divorced, God is not calling you to live with the guilt or live with the pain or live with the damage caused by a divorce. God is not expecting you to Make that a hidden part of your life, lest other people 
view you differently. If, if they do, they're wrong for that. I'm speaking of those now who are in Christ and who have, if there is restoration or repentance that needs to be made, have made it. I'm not talking about those who have sinfully caused a divorce and are persisting in the sins that caused that divorce. It's a whole other subject. Paul's writing to a church here. Okay. If you've been divorced, God is calling you to glorify Him and live for Him now where you are. Philippians 3.13, verse, verse 13 through 13 through 14. Brethren, I count myself not to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. But don't allow your past to hinder you from fully devoting yourself to the glory of Christ now. So hopefully these disclaimers have eased your mind, have given you an idea of where my heart is as I approach this text. When we approach a text like this, uh, maybe in the mindset of just a a mere exegete, I just want to give you sheer interpretation. Well, that's great, but that's not pastoring. That's not preaching. Preaching requires taking into consideration the heart of your congregation. And if all you have is head knowledge, you you are malnourished. So may the Lord not only explain to us what this text means, but may He reach down into our heart and cause this text to shape us and to help us to glorify Christ. As we begin our exposition of this text, we must remember the context. Paul is providing practical answers to specific questions and circumstances that existed in the church of Corinth. And in order to rightly interpret the text, we must identify Paul's audience. I've talked about this before, and I think this is my third message from chapter 7. So we considered uh, intimacy in marriage, and then we considered the encouragement for the demarried, right, in verses 1 through 5, 1 through 6, and then 7 through 9, respectively. And what we pointed out was that in this chapter, Paul structures himself by addressing two complementary groups. So in verses 1 through 5, he talks to husbands and wives. In verses 6 through 9, he talks to widows and widowers. And he continues this pattern in verses 10 through 16. Paul will address two sets of complementary parties. In verses 10 through 11... Paul speaks primarily to a marriage consisting of two believers. Two believers that are married to one another. In verses 12 through 16, though, he speaks to a marriage consisting of a believer and an unbeliever. And that is how I've outlined this text. And it's important for us to remember this, lest we, though the application does transcend the immediate audience many times, but we must never forget that original audience, lest we do misapply it, to someone it doesn't belong to, right? So uh, let's begin in verse number 10. I want you to see the principles for Christian marriages. And when I say Christian marriages, I'm talking about the marriage between two believers, two Christians. So verse 10 says, Unto the married I command, and we have to explain this phrase that's coming up. He says, Yet not I, but the Lord. Well, this interesting little phrase has been woefully abused to teach something that it emphatically doesn't mean. Some will take verse 10, where Paul says, I command, yet not I but the Lord. And then they'll take verse 12, where he says, 
Um, I'm speaking to you now, not the Lord, I'm speaking to you. And they will, they will make an unbiblical distinction between the words of Paul and the words of Jesus. And they will say that, uh, you know, you have what they call red-letter Christians. They only believe the, the red letters, only believe what Jesus said, and they ignore what Paul said. This is just a painful misinterpretation of this text, because we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I, a month ago or so, I preached... Sola Scriptura. All Scripture is equally the Word of God and equally authoritative. So that is not what Paul is saying here, okay? When he says, I command, yet not I but the Lord, rather what Paul means here is that he is, what he is saying here is not something new or original to him. He is simply restating something that Christ taught during his personal ministry. When he says the Lord here, he's referring to Jesus Christ in the flesh, on earth, the teaching ministry of Christ. When Jesus spoke about marriage, which he did, he did so in the context of two visible members of the covenant. Two people that at least outwardly belonged to God. And so Paul, in verses 10 and 11, he simply restates that principle for the Corinthians. This teaching did not originate with Paul. It has always been the Lord's position. That is something else that we must take into account. When Jesus speaks about marriage, as we'll see, he doesn't say, well, now under the new covenant, I've got you a whole new set of uh, regulation for marriage. No, what does he say? He says, from the beginning. From the beginning. Well, so what what does Jesus say? Well, verse 10, let not the wife depart from her husband. If there is a marriage that consists of two Christians, Paul says, quoting the Lord, don't get a divorce. Paul is rejecting the idea that married believers should get a divorce, and he does not feel the need to qualify or soften that statement. He just says, two Christians that are married, let not the wife depart from her husband. The Lord is commanding you in that direction. Well, where does the Lord make such a command? Well, I want you to hold your place in 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter number 19. Matthew chapter number 19. This is one of those scenes which are very common in the personal ministry of Jesus Christ where the Pharisees thought they had him and they had approached him with a trick question, right? They were going to outsmart him. I always always love it when they do that. They had no idea who he was. No idea who he was. And so they've asked him about marriage and about the law in Deuteronomy 24. I want you to pick up with me in verse 4 of of chapter 19. He answered and said unto them, Have ye not read? I love how Jesus' answer is always just, Well, if you would have just read your Bibles, you wouldn't be asking me this question. (laughs) Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male? And female. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Paul requotes this and says, If you're married and you are two people that visibly are in covenant with God, you're professing believers, don't get a divorce. Don't get a divorce. 
this one flesh union is something that God creates. God is the one who makes this union. Divorce, then, is an act of man that desecrates and destroys an institution that God established, blessed, and sanctified. Divorce is very serious. I know you can drive down Interstate 65 and you can see billboards that say, Easy Divorce, $299, go to this website. Those who peddle divorce for profit will stand before the judgment seat. And they will have to give an answer for their assault on an institution that God blessed and sanctified. What God makes, God breaks. And He is the one that has ordained and consecrated every marriage. Furthermore, marriage is the institution that God chose to picture Christ's relationship with the church. When we sever a marriage as believers, we are conveying to the world something about Christ's relationship with His people, something that is unpatently untrue of Him. Because though we are an imperfect bride with many, many faults, though we are a bride even with times of unfaithfulness, Christ will never leave us. He will never divorce us. He has shed His blood for us. He has given His life for us. He went to the cross of Calvary because He loved you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy that I might espouse you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He died that you might be pure, that you might be spotless, without blemish, without wrinkle, that you might be presented to Him. And He's going to perfectly perform and keep His marital vows to His church. The Christ who has lived for us, the Christ who has died for us, the Christ who has risen again for us, will never forsake us. Christ's spiritual marriage to His church sets the standard for our physical marriages between one another. Husbands are to love their wives how? As Christ loved the church. And even as the church is to submit to and honor and respect Christ, so too is the wife to reverence her husband. And because Jesus will never leave His bride, so we ought not to forsake our spouses. You say, well, that's just too difficult. And the disciples said that, by the way. Keep reading in Matthew 19. They said, Lord, if this is the teaching on marriage, then who should be married? And, and I say to you, you're right. Apart from the grace of God, you cannot do it. But our compassionate God does indeed give His people the grace that they need to obey His will. Apart from the grace of God, you couldn't, you couldn't do anything in the will of Christ, including maintain a God-glorifying marriage. We rely on Him for those things. 
If you ever begin to feel that your marriage is just so difficult, you get ready to just give up. I want you to consider yourself. Consider all of your struggles and all of your failures and all of your shortcomings and ask yourself, has Christ ever given up on you? This is the ideal. This is the ideal here. We're going to get into the, to what happens when we, when we don't have the ideal. But this is the ideal. Because the, the, the blessed thing about this truth is that Christ's love for you as His church doesn't depend on your performance. You look at the reasons for divorce. Well, He didn't meet up to my expectations. Well, she didn't, she didn't do what I thought she would do. Uh, he didn't complete me like I thought He would complete me. It's a good thing that Christ did not betroth Himself to us because of what we had to offer Him. He, he did not seek us out because we were the most pretty and attractive thing out there to be had. No, we were prostituting ourselves in wickedness on the street corner. We were filthy and undone, and He pursued us. Do you know why I stay married to my wife? I've said this before, I know. It's not first and foremost because she's the most beautiful and amazing woman that I've ever met. A wonderful mother of our son. And an excellent helpmeet. I stay married to her because God has called me to lay down my life for her. I know there's some young men in the church that are contemplating marriage. When you're contemplating marriage, don't think about how pretty she is and how much fun you have when you're with her and what a wonderful talker she is. Has God called you to lay down your life for her? Looks may fade. People get grouchy. But the calling of God is irrevocable. So that's the ideal. Paul knows that nothing, nothing about our fallen world is untainted by sin's curse. So he provides some further instructions for us in verse 11 where he says, But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And then he repeats. He, notice he couches the, the but in the midst of the command, so he says, let not the husband leave his wife at the end of verse 12, after he's already said, let not the wife leave her husband. And then in the middle is this but, again, showing that this is less than ideal. According to this text, if a believing spouse divorces another believing spouse, they have two options. Remain unmarried, be reconciled to their spouse. Those are the options that Paul gives us here. And we see from these two options that marriage is no light trifle. God does not say, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh, unless they get tired of it. Then we'll just forget it. All those vow stuff, you know, that whole death to us part stuff. Ah. Interesting that the Bible's answer to divorce 
is the Bible's answer to man's sin problem as a whole. Reconciliation. Is that not what the gospel is all about? When Christ sought us out as his bride, we were not courting him already. We were not, we were not chasing after him. We were his enemy. And he reconciled us to God, loved us unconditionally, because his love for us was not dependent on our current state. And we preach this gospel of reconciliation, yet we refuse to be reconciled with one another. And my message today is not the message of reconciliation, but that is a message the church needs to learn. How many Christians? There there are Christians that will leave Jesus' church because of something a church member did to them. Jesus didn't do that to you. Don't forsake His assembly. Well, it's the same thing with our spouses. The the sins you've committed against Christ are far more heinous than the sins any spouse has ever committed against you, and yet God has reconciled Himself to you. And so if you can't love your spouse and be reconciled to them because you feel like it, then do it because it's the sovereign will of God for your life. Let me me do my best Vody Bauckham impression. When when Vody tells the story of a man that came to him was going through a divorce, and uh, Vody was giving him counsel, and the guy was looking for every little excuse that he could find so that his pastor would say, yep, go ahead, divorce her, you've got the right to do so. Vody says, the Bible says to love your wife. And the guy replied and said, well, I'm divorcing her, she's no longer my wife. Vody says, well, the Bible says to love your neighbor. He says, well, I don't even think she's saved. That she's just so wicked. That's why I'm divorcing her. He says, well, the Bible says to love your enemies. <laughs> and when this sort of reconciliation happens, and it happens, I've never had the privilege of doing it, but I have friends in the ministry that have had the privilege of marrying church members that had previously divorced one another. It's a beautiful thing to see. Before we proceed to verse 12, let me make one clarification. Verse 11. I'm not going to get down the rabbit trail too far, but I, I feel this brief clarification is needed. I want you to understand God's prohibition against divorce applies to the marriage you are in right now. (laughs) And I make this clarification because as I was studying through this passage, I realized, especially online, there are a much larger group than I... I knew that these these people that had this been around there, but they're quite large that will actually go so far as to say that if you have been divorced and you've gotten remarried and your previous spouse is living, you should divorce your current spouse and return to your previous spouse. Uh, I'm not going to get bogged down on this, but let me just say that is not only biblical, it is absurd. We, we can debate the permissibility of remarriage after divorce. I'm not going to do that here. But what's not up for debate is the validity of a second or third or fourth marriage after a divorce. Whomever you have most recently vowed before the Lord 
and committed yourself to, even if the circumstances are not ideal, even if there were questionable means of entering into that marriage, you have entered into it and God requires you to keep those vows. And to teach that you should get another divorce to show your repentance for a previous divorce is just absurd. Two wrongs don't make a right and two divorces surely don't defend the sanctity of marriage. And so there's much more I could say because I just feel so passionately about this and I was just shocked at the number of people advocating for this. So these are God's principles for a Christian marriage. Two believers that are married together don't get a divorce. If you do get a divorce, be reconciled. And so secondly, in verses 12 through 15, I want you to see the principles for mixed marriages. The principles for mixed marriages. These principles are not more complicated. or These principles are more complicated because anytime you mix regenerate people with unregenerate people, you introduce a whole new layer of complexity. So let us pay close attention to what Paul says here. So he says, verse 12, but to the rest. And if we understand this pattern of complementary groups, we know he's talked about husbands and wives. He's talked about widows and widowers. He's talked about uh, Christian marriages. Well, who's left? Those who are married, one believer and one unbeliever. We must understand these verses in that context. And he says, but to the rest... Speak I, not the Lord. Again, Paul is not undermining the doctrine of inspiration. He's simply addressing something that Jesus didn't directly address during his personal ministry. A mixed marriage is between one person who is in covenant with God and one person who is not in covenant with God. And Jesus taught in a Jewish context to an audience that, at least outwardly, was in covenant with God through that Old Testament administration. Okay? But Paul, on the other hand, post-Pentecost, right, is preaching and teaching amongst a very different audience, a Gentile church with multiple cultures, with multiple religious backgrounds, and he's having to tread into territory that Jesus, at least in his personal ministry, didn't address. Though Jesus does address it in the Word of God. And I'm not going to get into a theology of Scripture. I trust You understand what I'm saying. Now, the mixed marriages in the Corinthian church could have occurred in one of two ways. Probably the most common case is when you had two pagans that were married and the Lord saved one of them and had not yet saved the other. But we also wouldn't put it past the Corinthians for one of them that were a believer and a member of that church to marry an unbeliever. And, in fact, we can imply that that probably was there because Paul says to this same church, do not yoke yourself together with unbelievers. He has to give them that admonition. And it's just like, you know, whenever you see a stupid warning sign somewhere, you see it and you think, that sign's there because someone did that, right? Well, it's the same in in the pastoral epistles. We find Paul giving warnings and prohibitions because someone did that. But Paul isn't concerned with how the marriage came about. Again, he's he's not advocating for divorce. He doesn't even he doesn't even speak to how it happened. He doesn't even speak to, well, you shouldn't have done this, because they did. So it doesn't matter. We could sit here and lament 
the fact that a believer married an unbeliever. The fact is they did it. And what we need to do now is sanctify that situation to the best that we can in this fallen world. So Paul says, verse 12, If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. We know that such marriages existed in the Corinthian church, and we can infer that the believing spouse was seeking advice on what to do about it. Why might a believing spouse write to Paul and say, what should I do about my lost husband or wife? Well, because elsewhere, Paul teaches that when a Christian yokes himself to paganism and and blends in with that depraved culture, he defiles himself, and worse than that, he defiles his body, which is the temple of the Holy Ghost. He said in chapter 6, when a Christian joins himself together with a harlot, he brings Christ into that sin. So you can see how logically a believer in Corinth who was married to an unbeliever might say, well, what about my lost spouse, Paul? Should I leave them because I'm joined together with them and, I, and, and I'm defiling myself? Should they get out of that marriage? Well, Paul makes it abundantly clear that if the unbeliever is peaceable, pleased to dwell with them, they are not to divorce simply because they're married to an unbeliever. Now, why is that? Well, as he will explain in verse 14, because the ministry of God's grace in marriage is stronger than the influence of an unbeliever. The ministry of God's grace in marriage. And and I won't be able to give you a full explanation about this because this is not, this does not apply to your your lost boyfriend or your lost girlfriend. The Bible does not endorse missionary dating. And there's 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 nothing that good that comes out of that, right? But there's something about this union of marriage that so has the blessing of God that it's almost like there's a different principle there that that your profession and your your witness for Christ overcomes the influence of the unbeliever. So he says In verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Now let me tell you what Paul is not saying. What Paul is not saying is that an unbelieving spouse will be saved simply because they're married to a Christian. This is not salvific sanctification that occurs. And we know that because look who the agent is in this sanctification. Who is the one that is doing the sanctification? Well, saving sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not who's doing the sanctifying in this verse. It says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. This caused me to doubt my own salvation because I think my wife is so sanctifying to me. It's the, it's the believing spouse that is performing the sanctification. It's interesting how the Bible words that. The Bible teaches that the believing spouse has a remarkable opportunity to be a witness for Christ before their unbelieving partner. And that witness overcomes the influence of unbelief in the marriage. So if you're married to an unbeliever, not only are you not defiling yourself, you're doing something that no one else could do. You you couldn't get a missionary like that into the house. 
There's no greater way for God to expose someone to the gospel of Christ than to do it through their own spouse. And salvation is of the Lord. We, we, cannot, we cannot really learn too much about salvation through statistics, but the statistics are there. When the Father comes to Christ, the, the, the statistics of the family coming to Christ... And I, the way I kind of explain that when the Lord saves the father or saves the mother is because God so loves his people that, that he's gracious to them and he grants them the salvation of their loved ones. It's God's gift when your loved ones are saved. And I don't even think it's wrong to pray that way. Lord, I know you love me. I know you've poured out your grace upon me. I know that you bless me as your child, and I'm asking for this blessing. Lord, it would be a blessing to me if you would save my wife, if you would save my husband, if you would save my children. And this text gives us the hope to pray that way. Don't do the selfish thing and divorce. Stay right where you are and live for the glory of God before your unbelieving spouse. And not only for your unbelieving spouse, notice what else this verse says, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. A Christian's witness in a mixed marriage doesn't stop with their spouse. It extends to the children as well. And now again, this is not teaching that your children are saved through the faith of their parents. Nor is this a proof text for infant baptism, as our Presbyterian friends would tell us. In fact, this verse doesn't even remotely mention baptism. To get to baptism, we would have to use imagination, not interpretation. It's not holy in any type of federal sense, but it's holy in the same sense of sanctification. To sanctify, to set apart, same context there. It's a synonymous verb. To make something holy is to sanctify it, to set it apart for holy means. You are exposing your children to an influence of holiness that they would not have if there was no believer in their family. But because they have a believing parent, they are sanctified under the influences of the gospel. Even with an unbelieving spouse, you still have the opportunity to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so for these reasons, Paul admonishes believers not to divorce their unbelieving spouse. But then the question becomes, well, what about in cases when the unbeliever is not pleased to dwell with the believer? What should the believer do when their unbelieving spouse becomes hostile to them seeks to subvert their faith and seeks to divorce them. When an unbeliever emphatically initiates and seeks and pursues a divorce to a believer, how do we deal with that situation? Every pastor has to know what they believe about that and how they're going to counsel in that situation because it happens. Jesus said, I didn't come, don't think I came with peace. I came with a sword. I came to divide. Father from son, mother from daughter, brother from sister, and yes, sometimes husband from wife. So here's an important principle for mixed marriages. Notice what he says in verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. Here's the principle. Though the believer does not have 
biblical permission to initiate the divorce, he or she does not sin by cooperating in a divorce that is forced upon them. That's what we have to see from this text. One of my dearest friends was in this very situation. He was married and and they had two children. His wife forsook her profession of faith, renounced Christ, filed for divorce, and he fought it for over a year until she finally sued him because he believed, I am not to put away my wife. But I don't believe he sinned by signing that paper that was served to him because of what Paul says in verse 15. And by the way, I don't think that this only applies to when the unbeliever files for divorce. But when when Paul says, if the unbelieving depart, let them depart, I think this is liberating us from forcing religious observance upon our unbelieving spouse. If you have a spouse that, you know, it's going to be World War III if you insist on them coming to church, let them stay home. God does not call you to drag your spouse to church to force them to pray and nagging is not a valid form of evangelism. (laughs) Aren't you glad God says this? Because what does this do? This alleviates the burden that we might feel otherwise, right? So then he says this in verse 15 and our time is already gone and we're just now getting to the most difficult phrase in this whole text. The phrase that caused me the most trouble in in being able to preach this text. And he says, a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. This is so troublesome because there are a lot of plausible interpretations of what this means. And if you read five different commentators, you'll get five different interpretations and three of them will sound very convincing. The rest of the passage is very straightforward, but for for some reason, Paul has left this rather ambiguous. So, let me just run through some of the options here. What could this mean, that a brother or sister is not called in bondage? Well, it could mean that the believer is not under bondage to force religious observance upon their unbelieving spouse. It could mean that the believer is required to stay married but permitted to separate for a time. It could mean that the believer is not under bondage to Paul's command in verse 11 and does not have to remain married to a hostile unbeliever. It could mean that the believer is no longer under bondage to their spouse in a one flesh union. It could mean that the believer is not under bondage to remain single after the divorce. Very popular way of interpreting this phrase. It could mean that the believer is commanded to remain single after the divorce, but that singleness is not bondage. On and on I could go. Only conclusion I've come to is that Paul intentionally left this ambiguous because I think really there are there's truth to several of these interpretations. And he says that brother or sister is not in bondage. 
you're not in bondage to the, the guilt that you might otherwise feel for not constantly um, evangelizing your spouse, your unbelieving spouse. And we rest not only in this, but we rest in the doctrine, doctrines of God's sovereign grace, knowing that salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. Well, and then you have the phrase, God hath called us to peace. Does that mean he's calling us to peace in the marriage or he's calling us to peace in singleness after a divorce? This is the quagmire that you go through when you want to be faithful to the text. So how should we apply this in light of what Paul has already said? Well, the context is divorce, not remarriage. So we ought not be too quick to use this as a blanket justification for remarriage after divorce. Regardless of your position, whether you are a permanence guy, a one-clause or a two-clause guy, we would all have to say that there are cases of divorce in which remarriage is not permissible. A helpful tool in understanding the meaning of this phrase is the, the, the little preposition, in such cases. A brother or sister is not in bondage in such cases. What cases are these? Cases when a hostile unbeliever is seeking to divorce a believing spouse. In such cases, we must remember that God calls us to peace. And if peace can be maintained in the marriage, then there is no need for divorce. But if the marriage is unpeaceful, and if the unbeliever seeks and initiates the divorce, the believer is not under bondage, and it would actually be contrast to peace to try to force that marriage to remain when there is a hostile unbeliever in that divorce. By refusing to cooperate with the divorce, you are only encouraging more tension, you're only encouraging more hostility, and God calls you to peace. So you're not sinning when that unbeliever sues you for divorce and you sign those papers. I have counseled with people that that have been plagued with guilt for years because they will tell me, even though they might be currently happily married, they will tell me, there was a time in my life, in my young Christian days, I was a new convert, and I, I, the Lord did not save my wife or my husband, and I wanted to now serve the Lord and change the way that I lived. I started going to church, reading the Bible, living like a Christian. My spouse wanted nothing to do with it, and they left me, and I signed the papers, and I, I still to this day don't know if I am at fault in that situation, and Paul says, here, you're not. This is Paul's pastoral counsel. Paul had the heart of a pastor. <laughs> Let us close here. Let's hasten to verse 16 because I want to close. We've seen the principles for Christian marriages, principles for mixed marriages, but I want you to see in verse 16 the profound hope in this passage. Paul will now conclude this section with a rhetorical question that gives hope to any believer who finds him or herself united in marriage to an unbeliever. He says... For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? For what knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Some will take this question pessimistically, kind of like, well, you don't know if they'll ever come to faith, so you might as well just divorce them. But that, that's not what Paul's saying in this text. He's not encouraging divorce in this text. He's, in fact, he's giving reason upon reason as to why, even in a mixed marriage, we should struggle to work it out and, and press through. Because 
our, our spouse is sanctified by us, our children are made holy by us, and now he's saying, how do you not even know that God might even use you to bring about the conversion of your spouse? How do you know that you won't be the instruments in the hands of God that brings about salvation to your family? You might just be the spoon that stirs the pot. And for every, for every testimony of divorce, in my experience in churches, there are more testimonies of, I came to faith first, we struggled for a while before the Lord saved my spouse. And it's true, especially in the context of mixed marriages, but I want to close with just a general encouragement that this applies to all of our relationships. The lost loved ones that you talk with and pray for the one that you're so close to giving up on. Paul says, how do you know? Say, God, I've, I've given them the gospel a hundred times. How do you know that the hundred and first time won't be the time that the Holy Spirit convicts their heart and regenerates them? Just hold on a little longer because you might be the vessel that God uses to regenerate their depraved heart that co-worker that you witness to, yet you, no fruit comes out of it, don't give up on them just yet. Tomorrow morning when you see them at work, share the gospel with them again. I know all our, our well, people at our church have graduated high school, but you have classmates in college. Now that's, that classmate that you've, you've given one of the Christ Fellowship Gospel tracts to and you've prayed for them and you've talked with them but you know they're just not interested go to them again say maybe you didn't hear me the first time I need to tell you about the savior of the world Jesus Christ how do you know you won't be used to the Lord as a vessel to preach his gospel into a heart that receives him There's no doubt much more that could be said about this subject of divorce. The subject of, of when a believer is married to an unbeliever. Perhaps you had, have even more questions now than when we began. And Don't think that my unwillingness to address every aspect of this subject is my unwillingness to continue these discussions with you out of the pulpit. I'll be happy to address pressing questions that maybe this message has caused. I don't want to leave you more confused than when you came in. But I structured the focus of this message not to purposefully avoid things, but to be faithful to this text. And so, no, we don't have a full theology of divorce, but we have been fed by 1 Corinthians. So may we, may we be pleased to receive the Word of God. May it convict us. May it change the way we think about these things. May we love our brothers and sisters who are experiencing or have gone through divorce. And may God be pleased to build strong, healthy marriages in this church for his honor and glory. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. And I do ask the, the patience and the forgiveness of these people that I have gone much too long on today. But Lord, we, we want to receive your word. We want to hear what you have to say to us. Father, I pray that you would give us grace as a church to pursue the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Uh, to, to be a shining light in this community. And Lord, I pray 
your divine blessing over the marriages of this church. Strengthen this church. May you give husbands the grace to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And may you give the wives the grace to come alongside their husbands. Oh, us men need you to give grace to our wives. Father, we we love you. And we look forward to the day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which our betrothal to you will be consummated. We shall no longer be your bride, but we shall forever be your spouse throughout all eternity. Hasten the day. Come, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.